You're listening to Endeavor Against Extremism, brought to you by The Clarion Project. I'm your host, Shireen Kadosi. This is a very challenging time for many of us as we see a convergence of different extremist groups and different ideologies coming into play at the same time in the same space. We're also impacted by real life crises of, of our everyday life, as we've seen with the world in a post coronavirus environment. What pushes someone to become an extremist is less obscure today than it was one week ago when we now are also experiencing added stresses, added fight and struggle for resources, added scarcity, added insecurity about tomorrow. And that in turn also makes many of us sort of really camp down and circle our wagons around one specific idea to be. And I think this is the time where two things can happen. Not only can we broaden our ability to to develop empathy and understanding for different groups of people that have produced different crises, but also use this time to understand what turns our own reaction, what what really drives our own behavior, and then perhaps understand it so that we don't fall in the same extremist route as other ideologies have. Because end of the day, our philosophies are driven by ideas, whether that's a religious idea or a social idea, a civic idea, a philosophical idea. The best way to bring that to you is with human narratives. I've always felt that the power of stories can never be underestimated. Stories are are the most human thing about us. And if we can understand our crises at this point, using a framework of stories and narratives by speaking to real people, by understanding the real conversations that really should be happening at this hour that aren't always brought to you, then we can perhaps endeavor to understand our world today and our place in it, as well as learn the skills to build the world that we want so that we don't have to go the route of other groups of people who have felt that in times of extreme stress and duress, the only way to survive was to become more extreme. When we are perceived to be people who are more concerned with toilet paper than we are the preservation of our way of life. Um, jihadists look at that as a indicator of weakness. They look at that as a sign that we are a people in decline because the things that are important to us are things of this world. My name is Jesse Morton. I once was a propagandist for Al-Qaeda in the era before ISIS and uh, promoted the message of jihadism in a way that the Western audience would find it attractive. We did an array of things and ran an organization out of New York City that was connected to 15 different terrorist plots by the time that we were done. And we set a template upon which a lot of what became very scary during the age of ISIS uh, was built upon. And now uh, I have de-radicalized and I work to combat the extremist ideologies and mindsets that I once helped cultivate. Jesse, we're right in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic and I got to ask you a question. What do you make of all this toilet paper buying? I have no clue how to respond to that, Sheree. I mean, in, in, I, <laughs> I, I guess it's a boom for the toilet paper industry, which might be a good thing. And then again, if the uh, if the supply side of things goes sour, I think that ultimately the people that prepare for once will be in the in the right. I myself am not a preparer. I don't have the capacity to think ahead very well and to plan. So I myself might run out of toilet paper, which would be unfortunate. <laughs> Um, you know, when I saw this, when I saw this craze of toilet paper, a couple of things came to mind, right? The first was that there's between, and, and I want you to get into that in a little bit, but the first was that there's sort of a, a divergent narrative between the, the East and the West or the Islamists and the West. And for the Islamists, um, for the, for the extremists, there's this narrative that the West is inferior and that perhaps they're now seeing it. So when you have the one of the leading civilizations of the free world 
go for toilet paper as the first thing in a crisis, it's, I, I wonder if these people think that that is a reflection of their own superiority, because I, I doubt that extremists would be fighting over toilet paper. I mean, we literally see extremists fighting over different things. Yeah, I mean, extremists uh, are uh, into bigger ideas, and I think it very much taps into the problems that we have with confronting uh, the espousal of their ideology. You have, for example, Muslim Brotherhood members living in New York City, as uh, you all have documented, as well as others, you know, telling Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood supporters that the moment they catch the virus, they should run into a government office building in order to spread it amongst Abdel Fattah Sisi's followers, which is essentially akin to the same call for terrorism, if you think about it, uh, that uh, that Al Qaeda and, uh, and and ISIS promote. I mean, for them, uh, in a war of attrition, wearing down the West is something to applaud. Uh, and so, I think that we have a new normal. Uh, formulating around us and that rather than being uh, only concerned with the economy and with the status of the toilet paper supply in our house, we should also be looking at uh, how the conspiracy theories, how the uh, ideological uh, framework that extremists utilize, whether it's the far right or jihadists, is being exploited by this and how that might have implications going forward. Uh, for the dissemination of radical or extremist ideas. What are some of the propaganda elements that you would use while you were with Al Qaeda? What was what was sort of um, what was sort of your framework that you would use? Well, the uh, most important and imperative component of the call to an extremist ideology is to split the world into a black and a white or an us versus them mentality. And so you weren't pro anything, you were anti everything. And your enemy was West, Western culture, Western society. And you would look for all of the imperfections in it, right? But then you would also, by being able to point to the quote unquote hypocrisies or the errors or the cultural decadence of another, be able to promote your own superiority, even though it was a figment of one's imagination in the real world. So idealisms come across as a solution. Uh, and the black and white mind isn't able to realize that as ambitious or as idealistic as the vision you're promoting for tomorrow under your utopia, whether you're a far right wing extremist and you want to promote the white ethno state or whether you're a jihadist and you want to promote a pan-Islamic caliphate, uh, you are selling a utopia. And you can't sell a utopia unless you absolutely create a disregard for whatever you're countering uh, or whatever you're opposed to. And so in every situation in life, whether it's the supply of toilet paper uh, and the coronavirus, or whether it's political developments, or whether it is uh, an activity that occurs and it's an isolated incident, non-representative of the whole, for example, a person abroad waging war in Iraq or Afghanistan, one individual creates an act that is not is certainly unrighteous you highlight that you stress that so your entire day is promoting the idea that the ones that you perceive to be the enemy is cementing and demonizing that enemy and so your entire world becomes about criticizing uh, what uh, you begin to be completely opposed to but your whole concentration is on barking a negative is on promoting uh, hate for another as opposed to looking at the world the way it really works, which is full of grays in between a whole lot of black and whites. Idealisms don't work well. Uh, and so it's very easy to cement a person's commitment to your vision, not because your vision holds value and has utility and is feasible and is practical, but because of hatred for some other that you have categorized as absolutely inherently evil. The only way that you can live in a world of good and evil is if you demonize. And it actually, and by demonizing, you're actually becoming the demon. But it's very easy to get lost in that because of uh, the way that extremism works, where you are inundated 
with one particular perspective and your whole world becomes about tearing down that thing that you feel stands in between you and the realization of the group's objectives. But really, the group's objectives are only your own personal um, feelings of incapacity and inaptitude or failure. Uh, it is largely a search for significance and meaning from amongst those that we might say are misfits, particularly here in the West. Would you say that's part of the recruiter mindset? So looking, would a recruiter then look for ways to make someone significant or feel significant? And can you give me an example yeah. of what that looks like? Well, the, the, the way that, for example, jihadists uh, cultivate uh, the appeal of potential significance is by highlighting the hero archetype. The one who is willing to sacrifice himself for the greater good and to go and march forth with self, wealth, and word, as we used to put it, the three categories of participation in jihad. And so the significance is that people will look up to you if you strap a bomb to your car and you drive it into a checkpoint in Israel, that you'll go down in history as a hero. And that will give you significance. Or in the event that you're driven by more narcissistic needs and you're a propagandist and you like to have attention and you like to have people listening to you and obeying you or following you, then you can call to an ideology that can be promoted and disseminated. So you give significance through different uh, means uh, by letting everyone know that there's a way for all of us, no matter what our skill set is or no matter what our intelligence level is or no matter what our amount of knowledge is, there's something you can do to contribute to this cause. And so by creating a cause and plugging in avenues to contribute to that cause, you create pathways for significance. But you have to be able to dazzle people with your speech, as the Quran actually literally says. You know, there's these types of people that will come to you and they will speak beautifully. And it will sound as, it, it, it will sound as if their words are poetic and flowery. But if you really dissect them and break them down, they're completely irrational. And so the job of the propagandist is to dazzle with speech. And really, what the propagandist doesn't realize is that the primary one that they're dazzling is themselves. So it's really about how impressed you are with your own ability to control others. And there's a very serious sense of narcissism from amongst charismatic preachers that do this, particularly uh, those that I used to interact with, and myself included. It was uh, calling and giving people an access to significance, but in turn, if a person experiences this belief that they can be significant by following your words and your directives, the only person that actually gets significance in their own you know, in their in their in their own sense, is 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 you, the, the the caller. So it's not necessarily about brainwashing and adhering. It's about getting off on the fact that what you espouse can inspire an adherent to join, to cement their cause, and then to contribute in whichever way uh, you're calling them to. Can I ask you a specific question? So, and and I think and I think for people, it gets so lost and obscure that this that this happens, and, and I get what you're saying because I've spoken to people who've been classified as terrorists and I've, who are still classified as terrorists, and I hear their rhetoric, and it, they're so charming, and they're so well-spoken, but the average person hasn't heard it because those, those tapes weren't um, allowed to be released. Could you, could you sort of shift back into that recruiter mode, and could you give people a taste of what you would say if you were still a recruiter what you would say to someone like myself and so as a female let's say i'm not interested in getting married and having kids like and you know that i have a certain skill set what would you say to me right now if you wanted to recruit me what would that sound like back in the day women were our primary advocates for propagandizing the message and the way that you tailor your recruitment drive at an individual level is typically you'll have created and disseminated some collective message that a person will latch on to and there'll be an opportunity for a one-on-one -on -one engagement. And if it's a woman, you break down for them that the Prophet Muhammad, he said, to make war, and in the command form you would emphasize, that the Prophet commanded us to wage jihad against the people of polytheism with ourself, with our wealth, and with our words. And then you would explain to the woman that the woman's role is not to wage jihad physically and violently. And if she is 
not of the persuasion or has the capacity or the capability to marry and to uh, make children for the jihad, uh, then she has two routes through which she can still contribute to the cause. She can raise money or give money, but what really is needed in a day and age when the world is going into a struggle against ideas or a battle for hearts and minds is women to disseminate the message. And so what we would utilize with women in order to embed them in our network, uh, we would use them as administrators for our uh, online chat discussions, or our online classes. We would use them to disseminate our material and our information uh, across social media. We would use them to type up um, segments of lectures and to make YouTube videos and in every way, shape or form to disseminate the ideology. And what that does is it allows you to, as a recruiter and a or, or a preacher, put in an hour and a half worth of work and then to have your followers uh, that you can recruit do eight hours worth of work to promote your message. And if you have eight followers, eight followers or 800 followers, it makes it so that you can disseminate that message effectively. And most people don't know that women are primarily responsible for that. We uh, look at Telegram, for example, the application uh, for communication that ISIS and other extremists now are utilizing to disseminate their messages because they've been kicked off mainstream social media platforms like Facebook. Uh, and, uh, and and YouTube uh, and, and, and Twitter. And we oftentimes assume that these must be men. But really, when we analyze particularly the English language ISIS channels online, uh, fundamentally fascinating to find out that the majority of the people that are most active in promoting or translating the Arabic messaging of ISIS into the English language are actually women. Women play a very crucial role in jihadism, particularly behind closed doors uh, as those that are responsible for disseminating the propaganda, for packaging the propaganda. And they oftentimes become the biggest adherents. So if I were to, what I would say to you is I would inspire you with the message of jihad. I would tell you the importance of jihad. I would explain to you the current context in which we're living. It's an age in the end of times where the Muslims will be victorious. But in order to be victorious, we first have to suffer. And that would tap into the fact that the only reason you'd be talking to me would be probably because you yourself internally, emotionally were suffering. And what I'm offering you, I'm I'm calling you uh, to a movement that will give you a sense of family and will give you a sense of significance, but it's even higher than that. Every single time that you send out a YouTube message as far as the jihadist mindset is concerned, you are worshiping God. And so what you want to do is you want to make the proselytizer or who is about to become your adherent uh, who you're basically trying to put in your, your harem, if you will, uh, a, uh, an avenue toward meaning and significance. And then you also have maybe a charismatic preacher personality uh, that um, is appealing for people. So she feels a sense of significance anyway, simply by the fact that you're talking to her or, or whatever. And basically you're inspiring people to promote your message, but in turn you yourself think that you're, you know, worshiping God. And so the, um, the whole, the, the whole ability to frame nefarious acts as a level of worship is something that create that takes quite a bit of tact. Um, and it has to be done through an intoxicating dissemination of the ideology and in a way to link con concepts of the ideology uh, to interpretation of today's reality so that you can make a person feel like, wow, this is the truth. There is only one truth. It is a black and a white world. And if I don't contribute to this, then I am failing in my duty to worship God. And everything that I do to contribute to this is in fact a component of worshiping God and will in turn end my misery. Even if it doesn't do so in this world, it will do so in the next. When you talk about the context of, you know, using the real world scenarios and using that to drive recruitment, when I look at what's going on in the world right now with the coronavirus, I can't help but notice a couple of things. and. As someone who works in reform and someone who works in preventing violent extremism, my sort of inherent uh, disposition is to always shift perspectives. How Here's how I would look at it. Here's how, let's say, the rest of us look at it as Americans. And then here's how somebody else, uh, someone who's vulnerable to extremism, for example, would look at it. And a couple of things I see happening right now is that for one we're seeing 
a desperation in American society, and there's a sympathy for that. Yet, when we look at the refugee crisis, there is such a stigma and judgment. And I, and I wonder if the American people will rec- come forward from this experience and recognize that there is a humanity to be discovered in the refugee crisis or in people in war-torn lands, and that they mm. aren't savages and that they aren't evil. And if we don't come forward with that realization, I think it drives that extremist narrative even more forward. And then I look at the the real economic stability that we're about to be faced with, people's uh, job loss, income loss, uh, the fact that you know it took incredible social pressure to even push the idea of a direct to American stimulus package. And yet in an extremist structure, like you said, you are made to feel like you have a role to play. Would you say any of this would be part of the recruitment drive or is there anything else that you would see that recruiters are going to really be picking up on and using? Well, I mean, uh, crisis is opportunity, particularly for extremists. The only way that you can overthrow an order or a system is if that system is in imbalance. As far as the extremists go that are jihadists, I mean, we have to go back to the declaration of war that was waged on the Zionist Crusader Alliance by bin Laden in the first place. He told us very clearly in a message directed to the American people. Uh, as we got embroiled in the Iraq war, that he was waging a war of attrition, uh, that it would, and he knew it would take a while. He said, we waged it against the Soviets for 10 years, and the expectations amongst the strategists were that it would take 20 to grind us down as the American power and to create the void through which the caliphate could resurrect itself. So with regard to the despair and the turmoil and the difficulties, the economic instabilities domestically, that are associated with something like the coronavirus. What the jihadists do, particularly at high levels where they do understand the intersection of economics, politics, cultures, is they're looking at this as an opportunity in crises. Um, And also, because of the spiritual aspect of what's going on right now, they're looking at it as a punishment from God. Essentially, there's a lot of literature in the Hadith Uh, the narrations that are attributed to the Prophet Muhammad about plagues, about the spread of disease, what to do, where they come from. For example, the Prophet uh, is reported to have said that God does not send uh, plague or illness into society unless that society has become morally corrupt and uh, is engaged in illicit sexual uh, practices. And so that allows you to take that, that narrative, that statement from the Prophet, to look at current events, Right, and the spread of coronavirus, and to blame the decadent practices of Western women, for example, or you could look at the origins of the uh, of of the uh, of, of COVID nineteen in China, and you would say these people are people are people who worship statues. That's why Allah gave them a punishment. You look at Iran, and if you're a Sunni jihadist, while the Iranians are people of shirk, they're people of polytheism, they're being punished. And then you look in Italy, the other epicenter. So you could frame a narrative, if I were a propagandist, where this is indications that victory is on the horizon, and use it as a recruitment drive. You have to destroy something in order to build your utopia, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is just further indication that the West is on its way out, and that the void that is created will usher in these end of times uh, prophetic sort of narrations that you can then feed into from that. So with regard to our perspective in the West, and I mean, it's, it's a good point that you bring up. Uh, we are now living in an era that I think coronavirus has indicated our interconnectivity, that we're all connected to one another, not just economically, but culturally and ideologically, and that ideas matter, and that um, when we are perceived to be people who are more concerned with toilet paper than we are the preservation of our way of life, um, jihadists look at that as a indicator of weakness. They look at that as a sign that we are a people in decline because the things that are important to us are things of this world. And when you think about it, for a person like myself who was once a jihadist and who has rejected and was born an American, rejected the Western way of life largely because of the conspiratorial, simplistic worldview that was offered and the inducing and intoxicating you know, realm of spirituality, we really don't have a message like that that we can sell. 
And the only way that we would be able to do that is to reconstruct the idea inside the minds of those living in the West that really occurred as the United States took over um, as the primary power in the world post-World War II. And there was a huge amount of awareness that what we needed to do in the United States was to develop an order based upon principles that were enlightened, that were drawn from the original Declaration of Independence and the evolution of democracy that the American Revolution had made possible, and that we were able to essentially sell that in a way that was spiritual in its nature. It was a spiritual process fighting the Nazis and building the liberal world order that we've now all come to take for granted. And the only reason that it spread with, through the democratization that was associated with the Cold War up into the end of the Cold War and the massive support we had for human rights, for dealing with conflict overseas, for using peace building as an approach to mitigating conflict and to resolving conflict was uh, it was a it had a spiritual ethos behind it, a humanist spiritual ethos that could sell. Unfortunately, because we've gotten embroiled uh, by a war on terror paradigm and we haven't recognized the importance of ideas, we have become, in a sense, reductionist materialist in a sense, we no longer have a vision that we can sell the rest of the world to get them on board. And so we have jihadist authoritarians and far right wing extremists filling that void. Uh, if we are going to be able to recover uh, from the further damage that the coronavirus will do to the liberal world order, and it will do more than economic damage, um, then we're going to have to have a awareness here in the West that recognizes the uh, necessity of preserving and working to preserve a system that a lot of us don't realize is endangered. But I think uh, as we come out and get more into the coronavirus and its consequences, we will start to not take that liberal world order for granted any longer. There's two paths to go forward, a world of international cooper cooperation built on the liberal world order that we built in the post-World War II era, or there's going to be a new order uh, that arises. And doesn't look like the alternatives to the liberal world order are much better uh, at all when you really peel behind the onion. But the authoritarians and the jihadists don't talk about how uh, hypocritical and how malfunctioning uh, their, uh, the systems they promote are because they're too busy highlighting the quote unquote hypocrisies in ours. And unfortunately, as far as big ideas go, we don't really have an ability to shop them anymore. And even those that do shop them are typically assaulted uh, under, you know, far, you know, extreme leftist paradigms as being people that are, you know, extremists themselves. And so there's that polarizing, uh, you know, self-defeating sort of hyperpolarization at home from amongst the left and the right, that there won't be a bounded ethos upon which we uh, can disseminate those bigger ideas uh, unless we can get over our own issues at home. So there's a lot of complicated dynamics moving around right now. And I think getting ahead of the curve on them is going to be very difficult because of the obstacles. We've almost dug a ditch. Uh, and this is perfect ripe opportunity for alternatives to come in and fill a void and to exploit uh, what will certainly be an economic downturn, uh, controversy around the spread of COVID-19 and all of the ways that it will change uh, how we go about our business, uh, I think, are setting in more and more each day. Um, so cultivating a way to come together as a result of that, rather than to allow ourselves to tear apart, is going to be imperative. You before said, we need to pay attention to the values we're holding, that we're eating ourselves alive and we're fraying and polarizing and they're strengthening. And what I see is that the as the secular world, which, and, and I'd love for you to differentiate between secular and liberal, but as the secular world sort of evolves, it's becoming more and more chaotic and, and more and more uh, divisive. And meanwhile, if you look at extremist narratives, one of the things that's just naturally driving that cause forward is that for as radical as their ideas are, there is a consistency in their ideas that is surviving the test of time. I've heard before that the only thing something like ISIS or an extremist group like neo-Nazis would need to do is just last, last through the chaos that is that is the world right now, at least in, in, in certain paradigms. You said we need to pay attention to the values we're holding. This is in another conversation. What would you say that 
what would you say are the values that we need to be holding right now? If you if you take what you just explained in terms of, um, you know, just the the dynamics and the the challenges that we're facing at this hour, and if we had to sort of boil it down across different, you know, across different political divides, and if we had to come together and say, look, X, Y, and Z are the values that we need to be paying attention to right now. How would you paraphrase those values in, in a couple of words? So, I mean, I'll probably get accused of being a patriarchal uh, white male for this, but the values are uh, encapsulated in the very simple phrase that is based upon enlightened and humanist philosophy that's in the Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, right, that all men are endowed with the right of the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And there is a imperative need to understand how significant that was, not just in a historical context, but also with regard to getting back at understanding the value of secular humanist thinking. Um, those are principles. They apply to people all over the world. Yes, at the time, African-American men were considered three-fifths White men, yes, at the time that they were written, the world was a very different place. But what they did was they created principles upon which the evolution of democracies that don't fight against each other, we know that. You know, what democracy offers people is an avenue that can prevent conflict because of the preservation of those rights that derive from preservation of life, preservation of liberty, and preservation of the pursuit of happiness. The entire body of law that is formulated as a result of the American system and the secular world order is based upon that clause, that clause, and then the connection of that clause to the American system when we talk about the preamble to the Constitution, which talks about the obligation to protect the general welfare. Once you understand the intersectionality between principle of life, liberty, and happiness, and the obligation of governments to preserve those rights, and then the obligation of the formulation of a government so that it can protect the general welfare, now you can do things like sell economic stimulus packages to the American people and to let them know how important it is to care about this at a governmental level, that this is what's going to be necessary. But again, it's different between talking in a reductionist way where you're talking policy, wonk, nobody can understand it, and selling an idea to the American people that in this crisis, it's gonna be tough, we need to come together, but we need to talk, start to be able to talk to those values, those, those, those most important values, life, liberty, and happiness. You're right, all extremists have to do is survive. It's why the slogan of ISIS is Bakia, to remain, to remain, to remain. That's all they have to do. A war of attrition, if you die in that war of attrition, you're a martyr, right? And if you win and you live long enough to see whatever you define as victory, then you're victorious. But that's inspiring, the way that you can frame that simple phrase, that simple value. The preservation of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is basically the core principles that were uber-revolutionary back in the day, but that we've come to take for granted. You look at states like Russia, China, Iran, or the jihadist vision, or the ethno-state's vision, they have no interest in preserving those values. But there's a really serious reason why billions of people have been pulled out of poverty, why we now live in a world where there's 150 plus functioning democracies, but we're in retreat. Those values, those ideas ultimately birth that order. And I really have to say that I think that secularism can be understood in a way that um, takes away all of the spiritual components of it. I don't think secularism in its inherent nature, if understood properly, has to be um, uh, something that is reductionist and only thinking about a material realm. I think that the secular model, if it's understood, the life, liberty, pursuit of happiness are very abstract concepts, but the implications for what you can do and what you can tell others to do are very serious. And it's really the demarcating line between authoritarianism, between imperialism, and between democracies and free liberal societies. 
I just think that we have to get to a point where we're able to understand their value, their utility, rather than uh, be uh, as reductionist, for example, uh, on the far right. The pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness should only be applied to a certain group of people. And on the far left, these were just words that mean nothing, that were written hundreds of years ago by evil, corrupt white men that were slave owners and trying to oppress native populations. We have lost at most levels of society, particularly amongst our youth, uh, an understanding of how important uh, those words that formulate, that serve as the backbone of our society, and then have gotten us to the point we are at, um, are. And uh, I don't think that we have to be as concerned with the uh, sort of what stems from them as we do that when you start to see an order collapse, you have to look at the principles that that order was built upon and you have to go back to them if you want to preserve the order, if that answers your question. Yeah, how would you tactically take those values and, and sort of re-inject them into our society at this point? Is there is there messaging? Is there some sort of initiatives? Like how do you actually reinvigorate our communities with those philosophies? So here's like the fundamental problem of human behavior is there are times in the world history where clearly you need a leader that can motivate. But you can't do that if you're living in a hyper-polarized context because that leader only resonates with half of the population. So it doesn't matter right now who the leader is. Half of us are going to oppose that leader simply because they're from the other team or they're on the other side. And that's really the consequence. And then you talk about, well, maybe a centrist can do it. Somebody who could bring us all together in nonpartisan ways. We tried that. Um, and uh, it, wasn't a, uh, it wasn't an inability to sell a vision. The election of Barack Obama had everyone very optimistic after eight years of, 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 of the war on terror and coming in during the time of economic collapse. And, but it was the policy, it was the practice, right? And that was, that was catastrophic. The policies are very, very, very skewed right now from amongst us in the West. And it would be hard to deny that they have mostly served a very small segment of our population from the time that the 2008 economic crises happened and the bailouts that occurred thereafter. They basically propped up the stock markets and people that have stock, but the majority of us don't have stock. They put a lot of poor people out of houses and they created the socioeconomic conditions under which a new poor formulated that's ripe for populism and radicalization. And that's why you see the appeal of populist politicians. But what we really do have to have at this point is I don't think we're living in a world where we can expect a leader to come that can unite us um, at this point because we're so polarized. So the only thing that we'll have to do is we'll have to realize that if you walk 19 years into a forest, you have to walk 19 years to get out of a forest. And we're going to have to do this, the, the, the long, hard haul of redefining who we are as a people. And that's going to have to be done by people that are not necessarily affiliated with any part of the left or the right. We have to, as Albert Einstein said, no problem has ever been solved at the same level of consciousness that created it. We have to have a coming together of people that are willing to have dialogue even if they are diametrically opposed to one another, but to have that dialogue in a way that can muster up cooperation from amongst peoples everywhere. I mean, look at domestic situation on the left and the right. The far left has grievances, they want to destroy capitalism, you know, they hate the liberal order, it's this, it's that, it's that. But their socioeconomic grievance is the same as the far right-wing extremists. It is a very different way to solve the problem. They have much more in common than they do difference, right? And this is really what we have to get around to. I mean, it's, it's all going to depend. An economic package is a policy that is not just a policy. It's an expression of the values that you hold dear. If you build an economic stimulus package around the principles of the general welfare embodied in the Constitution and the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, that is what created this order, you can sell an economic package in a way where there's an ethos to it that can unite us, right? You can sell that. You can't do that when you're Donald Trump because for whatever reason you are feeding into whatever you think about President Trump. You are feeding into a hyper-polarized arena where no matter what you say or what you do or what you sell will only be pointed out as hypocritical. And it was the same way on the left, 
when Barack Obama was in power. Um, and so we're stuck in this really nasty cycle of hyperpolarization that ultimately will contribute to tearing us down and is something we really need to extend our awareness of. We have to try to come up with a cemented ideology that we can sell that lets people know you can differ, but in our society, the value of our society is that you should really uh, appreciate the ability you have to stand there and to protest capitalism and to call all cops pigs, right? Or to stand there and express your far right wing extremist ideas as long as they don't call for violence under the idea that communication and dialogue can cement some of those issues. But we're not talking with to we're talking to each other right mm. now. We're not talking with each other uh, as a, as a community. And hopefully, you know, in crises, opportunity lies not just for extremists but us. But maybe as this thing grinds on and we shift into a new normal, we'll be able to find ways to have those imperative conversations so that when we can leave our houses again, we can all get to work and 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 make uh, the type of society we want to see for our children uh, come to fruition. Yeah, I, and I hear what you're saying, and I really appreciate it because I don't think the solution is going to be found in political leaders, and I don't think it's going to be found in the media because those two intersect so so well and so toxically within each other because both of them serve as these sort of sausage-making factories where you can only get in your punchline, your point, and it's usually the most combative environment designed to humiliate or knock down the opponent and not look at something collectively. Unfortunately, I see the same sort of pattern being repeated in human rights efforts, where the human rights initiatives that are often being taken are again so limited in their language. And and the language that they use is not that different from politics and the media in that it frames one thing as the enemy and then one thing as a solution. So for example, if you if you are championing the rights of women in Iran. It's usually coming at the expense of Iranian culture, Iranian people. Uh, if you are championing the rights of women, it's coming at the expense of, you know, what does it mean to be masculine or how do we respect that or integrate that versus just stand in opposition to it. So I look at how the language is used. I don't see a solution in in any sort of the main tiers of society. What I do see are are just, uh, you know, just uh, hammer and nail approaches. I do see things that are just, you know, you're told just don't do this, this is bad. There's no counter message, so to speak, which is why I'm really drawn to the PVE initiatives and especially your work because you've you've really mastered what what does it mean to have a counter message. When I look at where the solution may lie, it may be in the sort of what are now seen as um, at least for the average person, it's seen as a fringe niche industry. When I look at the work that you're doing, you've and I want you to, I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit more. I look at the work you're doing, you've brought together former extremists across the aisle, brought them together, even in what you're saying today, there is such a powerful counter message to you. And, and every single time I've spoken to a former extremist, you know, these are people that you would think would be the hardest lot because of your past interactions and your affiliations. You would think that you guys would be, you know, um, very, very hardened. But it's when I listen to the language that you you all use, when I listen to the message you have, it is incredibly compassionate and it is incredibly nuanced. Can you speak to some of the work that you're doing now in that regard? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that one thing that extremism will teach you is how to see the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So you start to think and you experience from being in an extremist collective the power of groupthink and the sort of motivational drives that it induces. It's almost like an intoxicant that you wake up with a cause every day that you're dedicated and you're passionate about. How many people in the world really have that right now? That's why extremism is so alluring. And when you point to the structural uh, state of our media and of our political class and the way that the system works right now is it is a lot of bickering from amongst people that are in the same income bracket that will make decisions that are going to affect most of us at the bottom and most of us at the bottom no matter where we fall with regard to their uh, debate 
um, in a negative way with a primary uh, concentration on serving their own interests. Um, and that's very real, that class divide. But it's that type of uh, environment and ambit at radical uh, ideas uh, come about and can be strong. But here is what you learn when you're an extremist. You learn the futility of hate and you learn the futility of violence as a means of affecting social change. But you also learn in taking risks with a small segment of your fringe brothers and sisters what it's like to really uh, have an impact on the world with a small uh, subset of, uh, of, 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 of your people, with a small network, if you will. I mean, we were essentially a group of a handful of individuals, primarily in New York City, and we set our entire country on fire. Um, and when you are connected to propaganda and the dissemination of ideas and you experience their power as an extremist, we were connected to 15 different terrorist plots. We never aligned to any of them. The people that would carry out attacks on our name were arrested or killed or, uh, you know, had some other haphazard consequence happen to them. We would go on because of only disseminating an idea and manipulating the value. So when you come out of that and you realize that a lot of that was just trauma and pain and anguish and hurt, you need to find ways to experience the false sense of love and meaning that you got from your contact with the extremist. It's really hard to find the type of uh, love and compassion and concern that I had when I was engaging with the key charismatic preachers in the West. So what we've done with my organization now is We've developed an organization that is very much uh, preventing and countering violent extremism not done by the ivory tower, that there is very serious mechanisms in this sort of industry that is CVE and PVE to uh, do the same thing that you were alluding to when you talked about the political and media structures uh, that drive our society. There is a collective cabal of false experts that are sort of for a number of reasons, trying to preserve certain imbalances. And so what we're doing is we're taking a very grassroots approach and taking uh, the perspective that it's not just about uh, preventing people from falling into the trap of violent extremism, because that is telling them not to believe in something. But what we're also doing is we're saying, okay, if we impact you, and if you agree with the types of messaging that we're putting out forth, one, Compassion uh, is the key to getting over nonviolence. So our real paradigm for shifting the uh, consciousness and the collective consciousness that we're building inside of our own uh, organization is built on three principles. The promotion of a global democratic identity that right now with interconnectivity, the nation state is no longer as alluring, that we need to have a commitment to democratic principles, but we need to be able to sell it at a global transnational level, just like extremists can. And then this notion of creative pacifism, that um, the only means of actually sustaining alterations that are productive and progressive in a society is if there's a commitment to nonviolence and there's a utilization of creativity and art to shift the underlying values upon which your society is formulated. And then this idea of an enlightened humanism, getting away from the reductionist perspectives of empiricism and the academic ivory towers and understanding that some things just can't be measured and that they can be conveyed and that you can feel them and that you can see them and that you can experience from the message and the, uh, the, uh, the, the life of Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. and their commitment to nonviolence, the same sort of uh, invigoration and spiritual consciousness that you get from Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi or Osama bin Laden if you're in that. And then it becomes less about the individual and it becomes about building a network that those principles promote. Um, and so what we're attempting to do is we're not just attempting to prevent and counter violent extremism, we're attempting to prevent and counter violent extremism so that we can sort of end a bleed a bit and offer an avenue, but hoping that over the long time we'll be able to formulate a collective consciousness inside of our organization or inside of our network, which is mostly designed to become, if possible, a social movement and network, that we can start to do the things that we're talking about, understand the imperative 
uh, need to uh, come to a solidified group of principles upon which we can espouse uh, a accurate historical narration, an accurate economic narration, a policy-directed narration, an accurate assessment of the uh, power structures that drive our world, and to try to come to a balanced approach at addressing them. Um, and the insight of former extremists is not just valuable in that sense in preventing extremism, but when you see someone who has come through something, especially a leader, we pull, we try to pull a lot of the leaders out because they've absorbed this stuff for years. And when they come out and they realize their wrongs, you have to remember that they were really passionate and committed to whatever they've been involved in in life, and it might just happen that they've been extremists for the majority of their life. But if you can take that energy, and if you can rechannel it in a positive direction, then those are the kinds of stories that can, if put together, can formulate a collective consciousness that can be a message to our society as a whole. Hey, pay attention to this. Like this extremism thing that you think is just fringe is not just about extremism. It's attached to an overriding radicalization. And the radicalization in your society is largely a derivative of your hyperpolarization. Mm -hmm. And your hyperpolarization, whether you want to realize it or not, is largely a consequence of you yourselves not being open to gray thinking. Of the general population being extremist, if you will. So a sense, what you can get if you really listen to the message of a collective of formers and we have survivors of extremism and activists and people that you know, are, are, are coming on board to join what we're trying to do every day. Um, you, uh, you, you really have something that should speak to yourself to realize that, yeah, this, this hate I have for the other, the other side, the other, whatever, um, we really need people to start to look at the fact that we all kind of do it because Mm -hmm. we're all kind of stuck right now in an age of extremisms where we've reverted to tribalism. And that's a downgrade. That's not an upgrade that's going to lead to progress if you bat the other on the hat on the head long enough to kill them, take them out, so that you can have your way prevail. The world doesn't work like that, particularly under dem- democracy. Eventually, if you're polarized like that, one person, one one group has to come to power by force. And this is the state that we find ourselves in. So, yeah, basically, that's the kind of work that we're trying to do: is to disseminate uh, information in a way that is a counter narrative to extremism, but to disseminate information in a way that can attach itself to one-on-one engagement, just like extremist recruiters, where we can get to know people that are interested in this work, pull some extremists out of the movement, appeal to others with our very sort of unique set of thinking around this, and decentralize this prevention and countering violent extremism field uh, so that we don't have to rely on people that uh, are supposed to be authorities, but any extremist that's ever actually been in the movement knows are completely full of it, um, to put it short, or actually to put it very long. (laughs) You have my patience. I I love what you're saying. I love that. I also love that you mentioned the radicalization that we're seeing in our country right now, because I can't help but take everything that I've learned over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, and specifically in, in the cross-extremism sectors in the last couple of years, and realize the same patterns are playing out in mainstream American society right now, that we are becoming more radicalized, that it has to be just one way and one way only, and, and it's escalating to the point of uh, sort of just um, flagging or, or, you know, green flagging racism, uh, sorry, not racism, green flagging violence, that it is justified to be violent in order to achieve the aim. And whether that's someone who's going out and enacting that violence, or whether it's our, in some cases, political leaders who, through their language or lack of language, are justifying it, that is the pathway to radicalization and then extremism. I'm going to close on this note. What would be what would be your message to the American people right now, given the crisis that we're in, which is unlike anything that any of us have dealt with, at least most of us have dealt with um, in our lifetimes, that we are we are faced with incredible challenges and a realization that the system has flaws and that we as, as individuals have to sort of maybe realign or reset ourselves. So what would be your message to the average American right now? I would say to the average American that it is imperative that the key takeaway from this is that we 
must not take the world that we live in or that we have lived in up to this point for granted. That this is an opportunity to get ahead of waking up one day and finding out that your economic system has come undone, uh, that the political circumstances are beyond repair, that the culture has ignored the uh, ability of this to happen and to go into panic mode. If anything, this should be a smack in the face. Hey, this world that you've grown up in and that has been quite comfortable um, is comfortable because it was established on these values, the values that we alluded to earlier. And if we don't go back to them, then you're going to end up like the turkey uh, for Thanksgiving dinner who lives a very comfortable life where everything is given to them, everything they're coddled, they're treated with immense care by their owner. They have no worry in the world. Everything is beautiful. And then one day as they lay down on that table and they get their neck slit because they're about to be put into an oven, they realize that all of the coddling, all of the feeding was only to fatten me up so that I could be a nice centerpiece on a dinner and a meal. And that's really a, an, an analogy that is is akin to what the extremists have been able to do with us. They've been able to provoke and to bait. As Osama bin Laden said, all we have to do is send two members of Al-Qaeda anywhere in the world to wave the black flag and the United States will race there and exhaust resources. And the only benefit for it will be for the multinational corporations that profit from their war, which fit into his anti-imperialist ideology and went down in history as one of the statements that jihadists used to mobilize for small acts of lone wolf terrorism. So at the end of the day, we have to come together and we have to really step back and say, hey, you know, we can wake up one day and see a black swan like coronavirus completely decimate our system, right? And so there's an opportunity to look at this and to take this time sitting inside of our houses and our homes where we can't really interact and to remember, right, what is important for our societies and for democracies. Because it's not unlike living in a totalitarian state right now, if you really think about it. So maybe we should visualize life under Chinese dictatorship or life under the beautiful ideology of the Iranians that some of us think are anti-imperialist or the authoritarian structures that drive the Russian state. I think there's an opportunity here to value uh, what we are or who we are at least and to understand that it's not so much about who the extremists are or who the other is whether that's in my opinion donald trump or you know nancy pelosi if i'm on the other side but it's about who we are as a people right it's, it, we need to take the eye off of you know blaming the other and we need to look at the imperative nature of coming together and that in crises there is an opportunity but typically crises do not come out uh, as opportunities in the long run. There is a silver lining if you can come together. I don't know if the underlying structural factors will be able to make that happen, but really essentially what we need to do is we need to take time to pause and reflect. We all live incredibly busy lives that oftentimes require us to not think about the deeper meanings and the deeper principles uh, that we're building our lives upon. We take them for granted, but we have to remember, like. The reason that we have the level of quality of life that we have is largely because of the principles we founded our society on. We have to take, reflect and remember that those principles should not be taken for granted, that for the largest portion of human history, they did not exist. And thereby, for the largest portion of human history, we lived in squalor and uh, horrendous conditions. It is largely those principles that birthed the quality of life that we have today. And if we want to continue to go out and about and interact with each other and have flourishing democratic societies that are built upon the, uh, the necessity that people share ideas and that contact with different peoples and different groups is uh, crucial to developing uh, better futures and to progress, uh, then I think we really need to take time to reflect on whether or not we are building our lives uh, on those principles. Um, and if we are or if we aren't uh, coming together to preserve those principles so that we can uh, overcome the difficulties that we're facing, uh, I think is crucial. So this is a moment for reflection. Pause and reflect, sit in the space between stimulus and response and find your empowerment and then alter our course uh, in a direction that's committed to nonviolence but also committed to espousing principles that are clearly evident and universal. And then you can delete hate. Um, and work and raise awareness that 
each and every single one of us in an age of intersecting extremisms that are all feeding off of each other has an obligation or at least a role or something they can do to play to contribute to the cause. And uh, that's our paradigm. The control-alt-delete-hate paradigm that we promote is encapsulated in that. So we hope that people can take that first control space and sit now uh, in a time where um, we're not overwhelmed and inundated with things to do uh, and think about some of the things that really have true meaning in life a little bit more with a little bit more reflection and come to value um, who we are and what we've achieved and how we are living in a fascinating world where the principles that uh, were formulated uh, several hundred years ago uh, have an opportunity to win out and to be accessible and to available to all. Uh, and if you look at the billion people in China that have been pulled out of poverty by the uh, slight adherence of those those values, even a little bit in, in India and around the world, and you can look at all the flourishing or, or the, the, the spread of, not flourishing, but the spread of democracy and all of that, you can come to appreciate the, the, the values, not just because you see things manifested, but you can understand where they come from and where they stem from. So I think it's an opportunity to reflect on the imperative nature of preserving um, basically secular humanist post-enlightenment values enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and getting back to who we are and learning why uh, the democratic experiment that is the, uh, the American uh, system um, is something worth fighting to protect and defend. Thank you. I, I always feel like that America is a story, but we have to remember that the story is not just our own, that there are multiple stories and um, that this is a time to to really sit back and, and reconnect with that story and realize that we're still in an opportunity to continue writing that narrative and then to learn of the narratives of other people.